I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. First, a bit of disclosure. I've known David Howden for a very long time. When I became a broker in 1992, he was the wholesale DNO specialist who looked after a big book of business for the Spanish broker I worked for. When Aon took over that broker, it was my cue to go off and become a journalist, and for him, it fired the starting gun on an adventure that doesn't show any sign of stopping. That's why this episode is a bit special. It's also a bit longer than usual. A good interview is a bit like a portrait, and the art of the interviewer is to coax the interviewee to reveal perhaps more of themselves than they were originally planning to. David doesn't really need much coaching, because he's always himself, and the most remarkable thing about him is that he hasn't changed at all in the last 28 years. Here we talk about everything you'd expect us to talk about, but a lot more. For instance, this is the first interview I've ever done where poetry has been recited. Today, I really think you'll get to see what makes David tick and understand what has driven him to be the most successful insurance entrepreneur of his generation. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes. And let's get on with the podcast. David, thank you so much for giving us some time. Things are moving absolutely lightning fast for you. There's deals left, right and center. And now you've just had a name change. You might as well get that out of the way because you've been Hyperion, the group holding. Yeah. So you've got Howden on the broking side and Jewel on the MGA side. And the holding company has always been Hyperion. And you've just changed that to Howden. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, Mark, fun enough, the name hasn't always been Hyperion. The, the original name of the group when I started it back in 94, was Howden Pangborn. Howden yeah. Pangborn, and there was Mark Pangborn. Mark Pangborn, exactly that. Yes. So, and actually, it changed with a part of insurance broke history that you are part of, because we changed the name after we decided to set up Jewel, and that was in 1998. And when we formed Jewel, we formed Jewel because the great Spanish broking company, which you work for, was acquired by Pat Ryan and we were a wholesale broker to Gilly Carvajal and I thought sugar with consolidation are we going to carry on getting business from large retail brokers that are part of firms that are potentially competitors of us so we set up Jewel as an underwriting agency to get business from 
other brokers as not as a wholesale broker, but as an MGA. And it was then that we decided we therefore need a holding company name that isn't the same as the broker. And we came up with the name Hyperion. And that's because my great friend and investor, Luis Munoz Rocas, who was at Giddy Garbal and left Giddy Garbal to form Jewel with me in 98, we had a logo that was an H and a P. Howden Pangborn. We didn't want to spend any money on a new logo. And I asked Luis to come up with a good name. And he came up with Hyperion, which had an HMP in it. And actually sitting behind us now, as you can see on my wall, is a picture of that famous racehorse, Hyperion, which was known as for being small, but very agile and beating much bigger competitors. And so what's changed? So you had that sensitivity around not offending sort of retail brokers and having a different name for the holding company than you had for the broking company. What's changed now? Has it all just moved on? I think that, you know, when, when we first started the group and in the early days of the group, we had to prove ourselves. You know, that's why I started out originally as a wholesale broker. We, we didn't have any credibility. We were, you know, it was myself, Louise, Mark and a dog. And that was it. I can remember you coming to our offices in the early days. And I was delivering Christmas Rioja. The Christmas Rioja, exactly. Always very welcome in a startup business where we got no money at all and couldn't afford our own. So in those early days, you're building credibility, you're building brand, you're working others to do that you're delivering the expertise that you've got but the reality is you don't have the scale or the breadth possibly to stand on your own two feet and I think now the business has reached that we've gone to that I was listening to you were talking to uh, Pat Ra and he was talking about when businesses get to a billion pounds of revenue then they're a proper business and we we are now there now and Jewel you know is a massive MGA it writes a billion actually in premium as well and it's time for the group to recognize its roots and I'm sure we'll talk a bit about roots today so I think we're going back to an old name not actually to a new name so that's why we've changed the holding company name to Howden. It doesn't have any kind of strategic bearing anymore necessarily it doesn't you don't have to worry about offending people or people being worried that they're doing business with something that is ultimately a Howden business. No I, I think I've got older and more cantankerous I've definitely stopped worrying about offending people but no as, as a business Jewel is a it's a very large business now it deals with six and a half thousand brokers around the world everyone knows it's a proper underwriting business and it doesn't need any more to have any pretense that isn't part of the group everyone knows it's part of the group and we're proud it's part of the group and it's proud to be part of the group and I think that you know now's the right time for us to go to market with our two strong brands Howden Broking, Jewel Underwriting and it also coincides with the announcement we made recently Mark about Jewel doing another major step in its history which is us actually putting underwriting capital behind Jewel and I think you know if I look at Jewel going back to its roots again in 98 we started unusually, it started in Spain. It wasn't started in the UK or in the US. It was started in Spain. There was no such thing as an MJ in Spain. They didn't recognize it. The Direction de Renault Secure said, we don't understand it. You can either be an agent of a single insurer or you can be a broker. There is no such thing as an MGMU. And we spent nearly a year persuading them, the DGS, that it could be. And we, so we created MJs for the first time. And I think that Jules always been at the forefront of what underwriting should be about and how we actually take it to the next step. And I think now this new model we've got for Jewel is very exciting. So it's absolutely the time for Jewel to come out from any shadows of pretending it's anything other than a great underwriting business. So you mentioned there about capacity being a, a new step. What's really driving that? Why are you doing it? Okay, so some might think we're doing it because of opportunity. Uh, the market's hard, you know, it's time to put capital into the market, either because we want to provide a longer, better opportunity for our clients, 
or because we just want to get a better capital home for ourselves. The reality is it's neither of those. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm building this business for the long term. And therefore, that's what really matters is strategically, why are we doing it? And actually, this is a journey we set about a long time ago. I remember when General Atlantic first invested in 2013 now, so nearly eight years ago now, they said, we've looked at your business, we don't understand why the group is not providing some underwriting capital to June. And I said, of course, it's something we've thought about, but ultimately, we need to have the right data to be able to do that. And so we've been on a journey to build a business that has got the right data to be able to say, actually, this makes sense. And I think Jewel has always been, some of, some of our carriers have been backing Jewel now for nearly 20 years. And there's very few MGAs where you've got that length of relationship. And I think that, you know, one of those conversations I've often had with those carriers has been, David, we love Jewel. It's a great business. We know you're backing it. But ultimately, you don't really have skin in the game like we do. And I say, yes, I do. Of course I do. Ultimately, if we don't underwrite for a profit, if we don't deliver the service that the clients or our brokers want, we will disappear. And therefore, I've very much got skin in the game. But they would smile wryly and say, that's not quite the same as actually having your capital behind it. So I think now this is a natural step for us very clearly in partnership with our existing capital providers to have proper skin in the game. And remember, it's the group providing capital to Jewel, not Jewel having the capital. There's a difference there. Is there no worry strategically that they would suddenly see this as a threat after 20 years, that it would be, well, hang on a minute, that they've sort of got leverage over us now, as well as having skin in the game, they've got leverage because if we don't back them anymore, we, they can just take it off themselves. Well, there's a couple of things there. We've been very clear that we are not interested and not looking to do two things, either to provide 100% of the underwriting capital behind Jewel, nor to be the setter of terms and conditions. We are doing this to provide long-term stability to our brokers and therefore to their clients. And we deal, as I said, with 6,500 brokers around the world. And secondly, to strengthen our partnership with our capital providers, not to threaten it or weaken it. And certainly any of the conversations I've had with any of my long-term partners in the last sort of few months since we've done this has been very, very positive. And you can see that also with the quality of the talent that's now joining us, many of which is coming from our old partners, very often with their blessing. So really, this is about a partnership. It's not about either a threat or a replacement. What about other brokers? Do you think it would affect them wanting to come through the door knowing that it was actually your underwriting capital? I think ultimately brokers are there to serve their clients and, and to do that they want to get the right policy, the right service and then eventually the right claims handling from their insurers or the, from their MGAs. And I remember when we formed Jewel, one of the early things we said was how do we create an underwriting business that has an absolute focus on the brokers, making their life easy. And actually years ago, before many others thought about it, we came up with something called the Web Rater, which was an easy way for brokers to get DNO quotes from Jewel. And Damien Coates, who runs our business in Australia, came up with a thing that if the question doesn't change the price or the deductible, don't ask it, you know? And I think that servicing brokers focus is the reason that I said that we now deal with, you know, thousands of brokers around the world. And reality is Jewel is an independent business. Well under 10% of Jewel's revenue comes from Howden, you know? So I don't see any broker concerned that in some ways this makes their 
job of dealing with you either more difficult or they'll be concerned about conflict because absolutely not. All it does is strengthen the relationship Jewel has with his carriers and therefore it strengthens actually the broker's relationship with Jewel because they know it's going to be longevity. How many MGAs, Mark, I mean, you know, you've been around observing this market for a very long time. I would say that one of the challenges brokers have with MGAs is looking them firmly in the eyes and saying, yeah, but are you going to be around in five years' time? Or indeed, are you going to be around in 18 months' time? What a broker wants to know is absolutely, if he's placing that business, the MGA is going to be there and there for the claim. So, no, I would have thought all brokers would see this as positive. And so, is there a percentage of which you'd never go on any binder, for example? So, I think ultimately, the way I view this, I mean, I come back to where, how did Jewel start? Jewel started really out of an old-fashioned binding authority that we had in Lloyd's for placing our business, led by Lloyd Syndicate, led by Rodney Stone Syndicate, Sean O'Neill. And there was that classic old consortia, a number of underwriters, Rawson Lance was another one actually, supporting each other to put together a facility to underwrite business because Jewel was able to provide that consortia, inverted commas, with access to business, access to talented underwriters, access to underwriting skills that they couldn't provide on their own. And I think that's the beauty of an MGA. If you end up having an MGA where it's got single capacity, you could argue, what's the difference between that and an insurer? So my view of Jewel in the future is a business that remains very, very agile, remains its ability to attract in the underwriting talent because it isn't the capital balance sheet business. You, it has that entrepreneurial skill set to it. The ability to get products to market quickly, to use digital and data effectively and partner with capital providers, the group of which is one of them, but there'll be many others who want to access that expertise, that talent, that distribution, all of that. That's the attraction of the model, not to provide 100%. We're not ultimately looking to achieve that or creates value, actually. Right. So Jewel keeps that agility, keeps the focus of being an MGA, and it has to perform for all of its capital providers, and that includes people upstairs at Howden Group. Yeah, we will be looking very closely at the performance. And again, you know, back to your earlier question, Mark, you know, do our existing capacity providers welcome this? They absolutely do, because they now know that we'll be looking extremely carefully, as we always have, to be fair, at what Jewel should be focused on, which is the underwriting profitability book, as well as its services to its brokers. So, and I think that I can't back to that whole thing around sustainability why we're doing this now is because we've actually spent seven years getting to the point that we can do this because we've got the right data we've got the right infrastructure and quite frankly the group's got the right capital structure to do it you know we are back to my earlier comment we now have got the firepower to do this we're not using third-party money to jack drill this is our own group capital so we've spent actually a long time in that journey getting to where we are and the next step is to create something that's sustainable mark over the next five ten years is not to take the opportunity from what's a current hard market because we all know hard markets come and hard markets go. You've alluded to that new investment, new war chests and new capital. The way that that seemed to happen was you had HG was the owner of A plan, you bought A plan and then HG then bought 20% of Howden Group. Yeah, roughly. So take me through the A plan. Is that something you've always wanted or was that just the price of getting HG on board? 
<laughs> That's an interesting question. It probably was the other way around, actually. I met Carl Schucker, who's the CEO of PayPal, has run it for 30 years now, in October last year. So not that long ago. I'd never met Carl before. I'd heard about Aplan. Aplan had fascinated me because no one in the industry could not have really recognized Aplan seemed to be bucking the trend. My view of Aplan was limited, and as it transpired, predominantly incorrect. But I was fascinated to meet Carl and hear about A-Plan. He actually met me because he wanted to talk about long-term investors. He wanted to know what CDBQ had been like and whether they might be a good long-term investor to him if HG ever thought, which they would do normally, of divesting. So we met, and when I heard his story and listened to what A-Plan was about and the culture of the business and what was mattered to them and the employer ownership and how he was looking to build for the long term, I remember thinking, wow, this business is a fantastic business. I didn't even know that HG were the owners of it. I didn't even know HG really, any of the individuals there at all. So I was very much focused on A-Plan and Carl. And I literally said, nearly in the end of meeting with Carl, if you're really looking for a long-term investor, there is no one longer term than me. And he looked slightly surprised and said, well, I, do you really want to get into the UK market in that way? And I said, yes, we've just been looking for the right partner for that. So no, it very much started with a plan. And then as we went on, we got talking. And of course, we got to know each other's business better. He talked about HG. John Bernstein, actually, who's on my board, who was the original investor director of General Atlantic. So he was the one who led General Atlantic into my business in 2013 he actually has a very close look with hg and it was at a board meeting he said well look i know hg very well actually so why don't you talk to them because maybe there's something there so i then met hg i met nick and i met andrew and we talked and i suddenly thought you know what this could have two sides to it not only could we partner with a plan maybe this is great and hg said well look actually we had no real desire to divestment plan. We love insurance. We followed Hyperion from afar. Maybe we can make this work both ways. So that's what happens. It was very much though, starting with a plan and then HG coming. Before I ask the next question, I'm going to launch a plea to ban another common phrase from the insurance lexicon. This is at the request of the Voice of Insurance's innovative friends at InsurTech Gateway. You may remember one of its co-founders, Stephen Britton, was my guest in episode 38, and that the first word they asked us to all stop using was the word interesting. That's because it's a word that insurers resort to when they don't really understand what a techie has just explained to them. So what's going in the shredder this time? Well, it's the phrase, because it's always been done this way. The problem with this expression is that it is a conversation ender, based on tradition rather than reason. When you end the conversation, you block any chance of innovation, and it perpetuates the status quo. I was chatting with Robert Lumley of The Gateway, and he has come across these words time and time again when asking questions like, why are you collecting premiums on an annual basis? Or, why don't you insure cryptocurrency? If we want to modernise the industry and embrace the wonderful benefits of technology, we need to start becoming more aware of these moments and use them as a catalyst to spark change. The InsureTech Gateway is all about facilitating collaboration between startups and incumbents. The ideas the startups have are often completely alien to the traditional way of doing things. The easy option is to pass an opportunity if it doesn't fit with the current setup. The Gateway works with the startups to present their ideas in a way that is more easily understood by traditional insurers and tries to find champions of innovation to work with inside the incumbents who are as excited about technology and new ideas as they are. So instead of being a conversation ender, be a conversation starter. 
with InsureTech Gateway. The Gateway is the place where you can collaborate with high growth InsureTechs, access new lines of business, or shape your own innovation strategy. So next time you hear someone say, because that's the way it's always been done, know that there is another way. The Gateway. A plan, literally on the high street, main street, you can't get more retail than that. And, and perhaps when I walk past my local branch, actually, where I live in my suburb of London, and I see A plan, and I always wonder to myself, wow, how long, how long is that going to be there for? It's still open, the travel agent's <laughs> gone, all the other, those other businesses yeah. have all gone. And, and I think, well, good old insurance brokers are still there. So what is it about A plan that makes you want to invest in something that seems almost completely analog and sort of almost anachronistic, one would say? I think there's a few things about A-Plan that are key, but I want to step back from that and just actually, if you look at our business over the last 26 years, what are the three factors that have built what we've built? And they really are, first and foremost, talent, people. It's about the people. And of course, there's lots of angles to that, including how we have the entrepreneurial model and they're owners of the business, etc. So it's about people. Secondly, it's about expertise. You know, we've always been starting back to my saying, you know, when you and I did business, it was because our DNO expertise. That's why Gilly Garvahal came to us, because we're experts in what we did. The third thing I did that lots of others didn't do, and perhaps they now, on hindsight, think it might have been sensible to do it, is I built distribution. We have hundreds of offices in 40 countries around the world, and we've religiously built distribution, whether it's on the broking side or the underwriting side. It would have been very easy for Jewel to sit in London market expecting business to come to it. It would be very easy for Howard to have sat in the London market expecting business. No, no, we've gone out and built distribution. So if you look at that, what have A-Plan done? A-Plan have done exactly the same thing. Actually, over a longer period, they were set up in 1963, in Oxford, same year and city as I was born in, actually, interestingly enough. And over 50 years, they have built a business around those three things, around people, around expertise, but importantly, around distribution. What has happened most recently, of course, like with exactly us, is distribution doesn't come without controlling data, and it doesn't come also without embracing the digital world. And we've seen that, all of us now, with with COVID. So to me, A-Plan replicates in the UK exactly what we have done, what Howden has done globally. So the linkage is very strong. And I think if you look at it, why are they so successful? Because actually, people want to be able to access the expertise, not just electronically. And I'm sure we'll touch upon it, Mark, when we talk about the London market a bit. But, you know, A-Plan success is that you can walk into the A-Plan office and have a chat and get your policy done. The fact that actually A-Plan during the crisis was answering calls in 20 seconds, some of the businesses that you'll know that are all online, two hours to get through. And for me, when I heard about this one, I, you know, you know, this, I love insurance. I think it's, I think it is, it, it is the force for good. It, it is the one of those industries that helps actually other industries, other people. I love it. And the fact that A-Plan is so insurance focused and so client focused when others are selling insurance because you can get a cinema ticket or a cuddly toy. God, how sad is that, you know? So I love the fact that Carl and his team have smashed the lights out by focusing on the client, by focusing on distribution and yet completely embracing the digital and data world because A-Plan is anything but 
just the high street broker. And they obviously have Ensley within their brands as well, which for any of you, unlike me, who went to university, will be well aware of Ensley's prominence in that space. So I think they're a very interesting business. It's fascinating to see the number of emails I've had from friends, fans, say, oh my God, you bought Avon, David. I love them. I've used them for ages. I know so-and-so in such an office. I get a better service. It's a great business. And it's an insurance business at its heart. Presumably, it's, it's a strong retail brand. I'm not going to see Howden as I next walk up my high street. No, de- <laughs> you're definitely not going to see how as you walk up your high street. APAN is a great retail brand. And obviously, it puts us in a unique position in the retail market. As you talk about high street, we are opening more offices at the moment. We already now, with APAN, have 100 offices in the, in the UK, and we're opening more. And I said that the day, you know, we are investing in the high street when others are running away. So you're far from seeing us shrinking the number of high street offices. You're going to see actually increasing them. And the organic growth of APAN, I tell you, has outstripped, like we have, all of our competitors. So, you know, we're going to be more of the same. Is the core of that small commercial or is it still personal lines? They started very much in the personal lines. Well, it actually started very much in the motor and then moved from the motor into the personal lines. Then it was into the SME space, etc. And of course, what you've got here is the... I've always said two things. If you're going to do a deal, you've got to have cultural fit. And everyone talks about it, whether they really mean it, sometimes is less obvious. But you've got to have cultural fit. That we have with A-Plan, absolutely. People have strategic fit as well. Just cultural loans, okay. But look at this strategically. A-Plan are dominant in their space in the UK market. Where were we strong as Houghton? We were very strong in both the London and in the specialty. You bring those two businesses together. You create the number three in the UK market. But importantly, you absolutely create a business that over the next five, ten years, I believe, can go to number one as it consolidates the UK broking market, filling the gap in between really where a plan sit and we sit. So we see huge opportunity. How do they do it without it costing a fortune? Obviously, the narrative of the last 30 years has been, you know, since Direct Lines, Little Red Telephone has been that high street insurance broking is really too expensive, a very expensive way of doing things. How do they keep the costs down and keep competitive in something that's genuinely very price sensitive? I think we've seen a lot of money come into the insurance broking market in the last sort of 15, 20 years. And that's driven really by the attractiveness of insurance broking to capital. They like it. What do they like most about insurance broking, do you think? I think it's just the repeat income. I suppose, exactly. Repeat income. What do the comparison websites not have? Repeat income. The loyalty on a price comparison website is zero. You know, renewal attention rates are down in the 40, 50 percent. Okay. A plans are in the high 80 90%. We all know that as a broker, the most expensive policy you can buy is the new business. The renewals are where the value is. So if you focus on providing your clients with an excellent service, if you make sure you are price proximate, if they value what they're getting from you, they're not going to change. And that means you have a business model that's sustainable, not a model that's about churning clients, etc. And actually, we're very excited about the push that's going on with the regulators because we do think there is an issue regarding those clients who have stayed with insurers for many years versus those are looking for new business. And we all know it's been in the insurance market for a while. So I think APAN's model is a truly sustainable model built around the core of insurance broking is get good clients, give them good service, and therefore have high retention rates. But you've also, Mark, got to embrace the world today. And we have the same, it's exactly the same as on the market here. You know, there's no point 
having offices where people can come into. There's no point having good service, good claims handling, etc. If you can't also provide people with a f good data and also a digital service they want. So you've got to have both. That's the beauty of Aplan. It's, I think, what we're seeing now in our London market. If we can use this opportunity to say, on one hand, we've got the expertise, we've got the people, we've got the talent, come to the London market for the value bit of that expertise, but the London market can also deliver to you actually a price proximate or better price because we've embraced digital and we've embraced, embraced data and therefore the cost of delivery bit is cheaper, yeah? Then you have the best of both worlds because I don't believe, you name me one single in insurance, online ether business of any real scale, none. <laughs> Last week, we had the Lloyd's Blueprint 2. That was unveiled. Do you think that's the right direction, right sort of plan? Look, rubber heading the road is always the right plan, isn't it? You know, I think ultimately, strategy is easy. Implementation is, is everything. And I, and I think that, you know, John and his team set out a great strategic vision for us. And we all need that. Everyone needs leadership. You know, God, particularly in these dark times, one needs leadership, one needs vision. You need to know here we're going, this is where we're going to get to, and, and et cetera. So that's great. And John gave us that early on. You've then got to implement that. And, and I think when you, the rubber does hit the road, you work out what parts of your plan actually have got to change. It's like engaging in, with the enemy in any, any battle. And I think what they've done very sensibly, they said, okay, what of that early plan is our priority? What can we actually execute on and deliver quickly? And I think that's, we're now in stage two of that. Okay, there was the vision, there was the, but actually these are the priorities. And of course, it's absolutely right. I mean, I would say this is one of the biggest supporters of the London market both on retail business, on binder business coming from third parties with our or with Bowwoods, or of course from Jewel, we know where the value of the London market is. And I think to have focused on the facultative specialty business and on the binder business and how to do that effectively, yeah, is the right place to be looking. And then to look at some of the other things later on. So I think it's it's the right strategy. I think what it ignores a bit, and this is the challenge we have as a market is that consolidation and cost are really happening fast. And, you know, ultimately, you've now got two large brokers that are going to control very big percentages of the London market. Lloyd's has not in itself built its own distribution for all the reasons we've known. You've got consolidation of the insurers who are supporting the London market, either in terms of capacity at Lloyd's or having their own vehicles here. And I think, therefore, you've got a lot of pressure to, for us to act fast and make sure this remains a market that's a viable market rather than we consolidate to where there is really no optionality. And that would be a challenge. So I think we need to move fast. If you were the competition regulator, would you wave through Aon Willis? Oh, absolutely I would. I, I think it's... I definitely would. Because, you know... I, I, you think there's I, still enough still enough optionality for clients they have plenty of other choice ultimately clients have to decide where they want to go to and, and what's good for them and, and i don't think my personal belief is that it's not going to be for a regulator to decide whether aon tying up willis is good for clients or not the clients will decide that and clearly from my point of view the insurance market is a highly competitive market there's plenty of competition here and i would almost argue that back to my market point 
if you're going to have a market which is good for clients and therefore there is proper competition, in a way, chopping down a big tree that lets into lots of light into the forest and allows green shoots of entrepreneurial, talented businesses to come up, I think is probably good for clients rather than bad for clients. So yeah, I think when we look back, this will be seen as a, a really big shift and something that's going on for a long time, Mark, and you know, and I know that this consolidation is not new and it's not going to go away and it's whether it's finished or not, yeah, is a different matter. But I don't see it ultimately being necessarily bad for clients. I think you'll see new opportunities spring up that will be good for clients. And you'll see existing businesses, some of them sitting not too far from you, probably being much stronger for it and therefore offering clients a proper alternative. Well, to that point, (laughs) in the insurance forest, the big trees are falling uh, and there's lots of space for howdens to come running around and planting saplings and, and nurturing things. So what areas, obviously you've already moved very fast, reacted very quickly to MMC JLT, and I presume believe with Aon Willis. In fact, recently you referred to this as you're like a kid sort of putting their hand into a sweetie jar and you just <laughs> don't know where to pick first. Where are you planning on picking first and where you think strategically you can make the most difference? If you look at the, the, the market um, and how it's evolved over the last 25 years or even the last 40 years, I mean, this is my 40th year now in insurance. So, you know, seen a lot of consolidation going on. There is opportunity everywhere. But what's happened over the last quarter century is that the number of options on an international basis are very limited, okay? You've seen quite a few quite strong U.S. retailers grow up, you know, and you've seen them grow and grow fast and very successfully, yeah? You've seen a number of specialist players grow up and become very, very effective, I may be prejudiced, but when I think about it, I think in the last quarter of a century, so I'm only going back 25 years, not 50 years, because if you went back 50 years, you'd have to include Aon. I think there's only been one international broker created in that time, and that's Howden. And that is our opportunity. No one else has the opportunity to take that space. We've had a very deliberate strategy of creating an international business with proper retail expertise in country supported by product expertise either in country or centrally or in hubs name me anyone else so really now we've got two major competitors so our opportunity is very much there yes there'll be other areas we're we're looking at clearly I heard you talking this the other day to when you were on a podcast again with Pat Ryan about reinsurance. We think there's a significant opportunity in reinsurance. We've always been in fact reinsurance, but we do think there's an opportunity in treaty as well in in a way. Because back to your earlier comment, I don't think it's the regulator that decided, but I think clients will probably say, can we have some alternative choice? Yeah, just because that's the nature of, of clients. And I think you'll see that in the reinsurance market. You're seeing many other people try to take advantage of that at the moment. But again, how many of those have the distribution internationally to back that credibly? You could say, well, it can all be done from London, all done from New York, but I question that sometimes. So that's our opportunity. Our opportunity is we think we have, and it's an overused word, a unique model mark where we actually are in-country. So if you're going to look at consolidating the a European broking market, 
that's very difficult to do unless you've already got people on the ground, you've got the people you trust on the ground. Who's got those people in Germany, in Spain? So that's where we see our real opportunity of creating an alternative international broker with real scale and expertise. I'm not talking about tying here, but do you feel that you really do need to have some of that retail relationship in order to be able to at least start the dialogue about having a reinsurance outwards reinsurance relationship with this potential sedent? I think you're right. It's not about tying. Yeah, it's not because no one's going to give you business because you're putting in one zip. That is a lot. No, no. But how, how do you have the relationship? How do you know the people in the first place? How, how do you know what matters for them? You know, in a way, unless you're on the ground, I always believe, you know, we don't have any expats running our business because how can you decide that from sitting in London knowing what's good for a Spanish student or one in Singapore? I just I don't get that. So it's not about tying, but it's about actually being embedded with your carrier, understanding what the issues are locally what's going on i think it's about that and i think that i'm not saying others don't have an opportunity of course they do or others are very good i'm just saying you asked me where i see our opportunity now our opportunity i think is in the fact that we have all of these operations in all of these countries and we have thousands of people around the world who can either deliver service to retail clients around the world or can have proper conversation with insurers around the world about what matters to them in country and i think that local knowledge it was the roots of Jewel. Jewel was always about an MGA that was in a local country, not sitting in London. And I think Howden's always been about having a broken business that's face of the client. And it's back to my A-plan analogy as well. I think that's enormous competitive advantages that we have today over others. So you've got, I think you described it as a thumping great war chest yeah. post uh, <laughs> the HD deal. We know obviously some of that money is going to go into, one presumes, organic investment in reinsurance broking talent. What else should we be looking for? Historically, you've had many, many bolt-on deals. Would it be just more of the same or something big, maybe? Yeah, so I think you're right. If you look back, what we've always done is try to make sure that we have got the capital that we need to build the business. Because it's all very well saying, I'm an entrepreneur, we love employer ownership. But actually, if you don't have any money then to do anything, you either don't grow or worse than that, you end up flogging the business because people want liquidity and the only way to get liquidity is sell the business. And how many times have you and I seen that in this market? So having capital is absolutely critical. And we've always had times when we bought that capital in. You asked me earlier, Mark, as I was thinking about a plan, what happened my thinking about HG? And we noticed when HG came in, you know, GA and CDPQ haven't sold any shares at all. No one sold. So we bought HG in with new capital. And that was very, very deliberate because as we were doing the A-plan deal, of course, there was the announcement of the merger of or acquisition of Willis's by Aon. And we did begin to see that there was a huge opportunity. So that war chest that we bought in and even post paying for a plan when that closes which will probably be in january of this year we will be sitting on over 500 million pounds worth of cash and so that's going to do a lot more than just attract a bit of talent on board so we will do three things really first and foremost well yeah we will invest in people in talent etc we've always done secondly we'll do exactly what you say mark we will do what we've done in the past which is bolt on acquisitions both on the broking side and on the around writing. We announced one in, actually right in the middle of when COVID started, we announced the acquisition of IUA in New Zealand for Jewel to increase our footprint in New Zealand. So we'll do that. But then thirdly, we will look at strategic large-scale 
acquisitions that could be game changers, just like a plan was in the UK market. We've gone from really not being a UK retail player to number three in the market. When we did RKH, we went from being a very strong London market player, but not really number one. We were number one for many years. We were Lloyd's largest producers. In fact, until Marsh bought JLT, we were the largest producer of uh, retail business to Lloyd's. So there will be some strategic large steps that we're likely to make as well. And that's why we're in a strong position financially to do that. And I think that ultimately, if you look at the opportunity for our broking group, it focuses around the opportunity to team up with like-minded, my culture alignment, retail businesses that believe there's an opportunity to provide a different service to their clients, but also a different culture for the talent that works for them. This is a bit of an old chestnut, David, so I hope you'll forgive me. Can you reconcile this contradiction of being as retail as you like to the point of actually being on a high street, on on a main street, and be able to walk in the door and transact insurance business with customers from the street in the UK and other territories, but shy away from that one, just not do that and, and almost completely rule that out in the USA, the largest insurance market in the world? It's a good question. And the reality is... Sort of your last line is part of the answer. The US market is the largest insurance market in the world. It is also by far the most sophisticated for retail and wholesale. Nowhere else, not even London, has that sort of definition or delineation between the two. And you can see that in the consolidation that's gone on in the wholesale market there. So the US market is very special. It absolutely is, and anyone who says it isn't it is absolutely wrong. So the first point is a strategic point. Our strategic point is that we believe that our best way to access the U.S. market is partnering with the large, independent U.S. brokers there. Because, as I said to you before, many of them have grown real scale and real, real size, yeah? And they are proper retail brokers that need servicing their clients on a wholesale basis for us in in the UK. And that is a strategic intent rather than saying, gosh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go and compete with our clients and try and build a retail business in the US. You know, we get our share of US business by partnering with them. The second is that if you look at the US market, we also have very strong relationships with all of those U.S. wholesalers. I mentioned before that we act on behalf of many of them of placing their binding authorities, their facilities, their programs into the London market. Bowwoods is part of the group and one of the biggest hand of that. So we have a very strong relationship with them. And that's why we chose strategically, absolutely, that the only on-ground physical presence we were going to have in the U.S., was on the MGU side, MGA side with Jewel. Because there, we're actually supporting, and we do get support from our existing customer base that uses it in different ways. So really, it's a strategic move, Mark, recognizing that the US market is completely unique in the way it operates. And I think you can see that. The interesting thing is, is that very few of the large US independents have actually gone out to build international businesses, you know? Um, almost none. There's a few, but al- almost none. And therefore, I think there is a good delineation or definition between whether you want to be in the US as a retailer or not, and we don't. We've had the insurtech phenomenon of the last four or five years. You made your own play into that with Hyperion X, which is now going to change its name. Yeah. I can't remember what to. I think it's HX. HX. HX, HX. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. 
We've just had a liquidity point, a sort of maturity point or a staging post in the InsureTech journey because two of the pin-up InsureTechs, Lemonade and Root, have both had very successful IPOs for the most recent ones. But given given that business, a market cap that would, uh, you know, the sort of higher than score or RLI and a few other very well-known, well-established businesses, do you look at that and you think maybe you should spin off HX at some point in the future? I think the way to answer that is funny enough to talk about Jewel again for a second, because I have so many memories of so many conversations with people that along the journey, and we'll talk about the journey in a while, Mark, along the journey have said to me, wouldn't Jewel be more valuable sold separately the group and there was certainly or not a time probably almost any single moment in time we could get more money for jewel by selling it off than having it part of the group so you'd say well why wouldn't we do it then and that's very simply answered because we're building a business we're not looking to just get a financial return and if you're looking to build a business yeah you're actually thinking about what's the value of that business to the overall business in five or ten years time not can I sell it for five pounds a day rather than the four pounds I value it at and we've done that I, I can promise you a number of my capacity runners tried to buy Jewel off me offered me higher multiples than worth for and I've always said no because Jewel is an integral part of what we're building it's exactly the same with HX you know could we today do a sexy spin-off of HS, get a nice flotation on the back of it, you know, etc.? Almost certainly, yeah. And technically, would that value be maybe greater than the value we currently place on it? Yeah. But long term, where would we be creating value? Would we be creating value greater in our business or from the return we get on HS? So the answer is no, because we're building the business to build it not for short-term gain. I think that holds true on many things. Very often we've been asked, why do you do this investment here rather than maybe in a more material market? And that's very often around who you meet or who you know, or how they well country fit. But it's also, if you've got a very long term, you know that actually, maybe if you're building a business, you wouldn't start at B, you start at A, or certainly not G. But if you know you're going to pass G eventually, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so I think there's a difference between short-term value and long-term value. I get the sense from this that as journalists, we were speculating about what was then Hyperion maybe floating. It was about five or six years ago. And it seems that the world seems to have moved on, that you're not, if you were a public company, you probably would be put under pressure by an activist to say spin off Dual or spin off HX or whatever every other week. Yes. As you know, it sounds like it's really not something that appeals to you at all anymore. And if that is true, then how long can you keep going? I think this is, will be your fifth major investor from starting at Brian Marsh yeah. and now HG. How long do you think you can keep this going? Has the nature of capital changed so much these days that you could almost keep going indefinitely without going anywhere near a stock market? Well, it's a very good point you make about the investors. And if you think about the investors, Brian Marsh originally a sort of angel investor who knew the market backwards. Then 3i in 2008, minority stake there, which was clear. Brian was a minority stake, 3i a minority stake. Then General Anchor came in with a minority stake. Then, of course, we brought in CDPQ alongside GA. And now we brought HG alongside CDPQ and alongside GA. So all minority stakes. So... I think what we've done very deliberately, Mark, is to build a slightly different capital model where you have got a 
core of investors, yeah, which sit alongside the working investors, yeah, to create a value over the long term. And because you haven't got one single large private equity house, I mean, there's a you see the numbers of one announced recently where the P houses by 100% of the business, a bit of sweet equity given to the management team. And that, that to me isn't a proper entrepreneurial model. That's a business that's controlled by IP. They will make all of the decisions and they'll flip the business when it's right for them. And public, the beauty of public was you had a raft of investors, yeah, and you hopefully, therefore, could obtain independence because you were public. I think the problem with public is it's had its challenges over short-termism, which you just raised. So we're trying to create a business model that is almost the best of both worlds. You've got aligned minority investors, yeah, who ultimately are not controlling the business. You've got a big core of employee ownership in the business but you've got then also access to the debt markets which again is something that's grown up an awful lot in the last 10 years so you've got liquidity there as well and that's a very attractive financial model and currently I don't see it therefore having any room to run out if you look at the size of the private money in the market if you have one single investor I can see you saying well once you get you know it was a the enterprise value was well put out you know was five billion so you could say well once you're 20 billion you know is it well you might be too big for a single capital provider but for four five six you're not going to be so to these businesses is their nature that they can stay forever they're not looking for a massive capital gain are they just looking for income then so well we don't pay any income interesting enough we 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 we, we invest everything we make we reinvest back so with general atlantic at some point presumably got this lovely paper gain did they get any money well they they get to have the fun of you know Having a, having a show, no. I mean, they did. They, they sold some when CDPQ invested, so they got some money back then. And ultimately, General Atlantic have been with me now eight years. Now it's going to be seven, eight years. HG and General Atlantic and CDPQ have all signed up to a long-term agreement. It's a very long-term agreement. They're not looking for quick returns. There's an investment when I was doing my diligence on HG. I talked to a number of them. Some of their investment companies, they've been in for 18 years now. So these are proper, people talk about long-term investors. We make sure that ours are, are proper. They are looking. And ultimately, I think if you're going to be credible about saying, I want to be independent, it's not a statement you make. It's something that you build in a business. And it's about actually delivery. Yeah? And I think if you deliver and you actually build a business, you earn the right to be independent. And I think then investors, quite frankly, they look around Mark and they say, where else are we going to put our money? It would have been quite possible for CDPQ or GA to have taken some chips off the table when HG invested, and they they absolutely didn't didn't want to. So I think it's got a lot of road left in it, and I don't ever see us running out of private capital. These three investors could be with us a very long time. Quick question on covid has that made us really realise the value of face-to-face negotiations and, and true face-to-face relationships? So I, I think there's a couple of things about COVID that, um, you know, it's made us do. One is a very good thing. I, I think it has galvanised the market into embracing a new way of thinking about how they're going to trade. And that's excellent news for the market. And, and you just asked me earlier about the lawyers' reform. And I think it's really good news. And we finally got that kick up the backside that we need. So that's great. But I come back to my A-plan story. We shouldn't con ourselves that if the London market becomes 100% digital, 
and we all work remotely, that that is going to be the ultimate success for our market. I think that that would actually be the ultimate nail in our coffin. To me, it is that ability to embrace the best of both worlds, to say we are going to actually have a market where our clients can come, can actually engage, can talk to talent, can get feedback, can understand what's going on, can get a vibrancy about being part of the market. Back to my point about we need a market. So I think that's very, very important. Many of the clients I talk to, they like coming to the London market because they want to have that breadth of expertise and engagement. They want to talk to one broker and then walk out of our offices and go and talk to another and get another view. I mean, hopefully they'll stay with us, but they like that. They want to sit down with one under one second, get a view on what's happening, and then talk to another. That's why we believe that you can deliver a lot of that digitally now. We obviously have HyperNX, and one of the first things we did after the COVID crisis happened was to go out to all our key insurers and ask them what is their reaction going to be so that we had relevant broker data. But I think the physical engagement is important. So I would like to see the best of both worlds. I'd like to see a proper market, yeah? I'd like to see Lloyd's almost maybe go back to its roots, be a really nice coffee house where you could go back, meet, talk, trade, etc. But where we deliver the non-value parts of the market, get rid of those slip cases with the slip, all the stuff where was, the clients didn't care. There was no value in that. That was just time consuming. And we get back to a market where all the expertise is delivered, all the talents available, the vibrancy of a market is all there. But yet by embracing the digital and data world, everything else happens smoothly and critically cost effectively because that's the challenge we've got is we, we you know particularly in a hardening market now our clients are quite rightly looking at us and saying if my price is going up by 10 15 20 35 percent are you delivering value in that or should i be looking elsewhere so my cost increase isn't so great that's back to the challenge that we've got to face but I touched upon it at your old shops conference last week and I said that one of the things I was worried about wasn't just the insurance market but actually was EC3 market because I was talking to a major client and he was telling me about his experience on the market and it was interesting I was listening to him and a lot of what he talked about wasn't actually visiting the brokers and the underwriters. There was that, but it was actually the hotel he stayed in, where he bought his coffee, actually how he had his hair cut quite often away his favourite place. And ultimately, this EC3 will not be the EC3 that we all know and our clients will know and love if all the little businesses go bankrupt and all we're walking past is boarded up shops. So I think we've got to, as a EC3 community, think about how we play our part in making sure those businesses have been less resilient, because insurance has been remarkably and fortunately resilient in COVID times, how we help them to stay open, because that will actually help us. And I think that if you think about Leadenhall Market and the way it operates, it's all part of our differential. Where else do you get that in the world? You don't get that in New York on insurance or in Paris or in Frankfurt. So let's make sure that we make the best of our advantages. I mean, I often talk about sustainability and I think when you look at sustainability and why you're doing it, one thing is to say, well, because it's just a nice thing to do. And that's not right, particularly 
in business. I believe that sustainability is the right thing to do for business because it builds a better, more valuable business, yeah? And I come back to my point about the insurance. I think insurance can be genuinely part of the solution. It can come up with innovation products that help us get out of the financial difficulties we're in. And we always have done that. And I think the same thing implies about this market. If we want this market to be sustainable, we've got to look at all the aspects of it and be part of helping that to survive and thrive. Not because it's nice and fluffy to do so, Mark, because actually it will help us build more valuable, more sustainable businesses. Because well, it's part of our ecosystem yeah, or infra- exactly infrastructure. That. So we need some sort of eat out to help out EC3 fund that you can all chip into and say right well the sandwich bars the pubs the restaurants the hair salons i'm looking i i'm gonna i'm starting to talk to a few of my you know other colleagues think about how we might actually do this just as lloyd itself is looking at how the building is going to work effectively in the future i think none of us can pretend i mean it's great news that it looks like the vaccine is going to be implemented and, and highly successful but i think it'd be a mistake for us to think covid hasn't changed anything and we don't need to adapt in some ways so to survive the, on the podcast with me john said he described the lloyd's building as an old victorian schoolroom and it really doesn't need to be that and, and i suppose in the age of we works and everything do you think it, do you envisage it being more like a big sort of starbucks with people tapping away on iPads and that kind of thing? Well, I come back to my vibrancy point. I think that if you want to attract business, which is ultimately what we should be doing, attracting and servicing is in good business, then I think vibrancy is important and people need to get what they want from a market. It's just like if you go to a fish market and you turn up and there's no fish there, so don't worry, it's all online. You just look online and press this screen and we'll deliver within 10 seconds. The trout will be delivered fresh to your door. You go, okay. But that's not very interesting, is it, really? I wanted to come and watch people, you know, getting their hands on some fish. So I, I, I think, you know, I'm not saying it's the same, but I think there is a vibrancy. One needs a, an ecosystem that creates a market. On cost-cutting with Blueprint 2, there's an £800 million cost-cut. How much of that do you think is going to come out of your costs as brokers? Ultimately, again, as a market, as suppliers of insurance to the clients, we all have a duty to get the cost down. It's not sustainable to say the cost cannot change. But all of us have our own pressures as well. You know, it's impossible as a broking business to say that I'm happy to cut my margins in half. Not if you're credible about saying that you want to invest in talent for the future and invest in technology. How can we do those two things? How can we reduce the cost of delivery of product and yet make sure that we've got a sustainable business model for ourselves and to be blunt, for our clients, yeah? And the only way we can do that is by embracing efficiency and getting more efficient. And we've got to do that together. It cannot be you. You saw yesterday the big announcement between Howden and Key. And you know, it's got to be by working in partnership. This market's always been about partnership. Look what we started talking about earlier on, Mark, with Jewel and the partners we've had for many, many years. It's got to be a collective effort to say, how do we work effectively to reduce the cost of delivery, but yet maintain what we really are good at, which is the expertise that the clients want, and then ultimately the claims handling as well. So do you see competition bringing those costs down, and but you keeping your margins? How low do you think the cost could go? You look at some other industries, which I've done this quite a bit, is you look at something like asset managers, fund managers. The really good ones of those have maintained the same profitability margins, yet the fees they've 
charged have come down, not by 5 or 10% mark, but, but by many multiples. And I think, you know, we should be really ambitious and very clear on really whatever we're delivering that has no value, we should try to deliver for free, just as you can buy a stock or share for free. Now, if you decide what stock or share you want, no one's going to charge you for buying it, Mark. Now, if you want some advice on what stock or share to buy or what's going to go up, then they'll charge you. And I think we need to have that sort of radical thought in our minds, not let's cut 2% of the price. How would you get remuneration for that strong advice? Would you get remuneration for charging for what clients really want? So either be on the advice or be on the ability to find the capacity they need or on the data that they want on it, or on the claims that they want on it. It's not for the physical transaction bit. How much of our cost is in the processing, yeah? If we add up the processing between us as brokers, yeah, and, and the underwriters, it's too high. And that's the bit we've got to try, not overnight. And that's very much what the blueprint is talking about. How do we reduce that processing cost? Would it be a world where there's no commissions, it's just fees? I don't know if that's going to come about. It's not something I'd be afraid of at all. Ultimately, I think transparency is good for any business and any market. We've moved to that level with many of our clients now. Is this really just a business that you want, you know, when you're on your deathbed, you want to be handing it out to your children and grandchildren and to have never sold and just built forever? So, um, you know, I, I go back to the histories of the business. I'll never forget when I was talking to the board when Luis Munoz sat on the board and I was trying to explain exactly that, that I was looking to build a business that would last, inverted commas, forever. In other words, there was no end game for the business. It was about building the business. And what was the priority? And Luis looked up and he said, well, David... Have you read Ithaca, the poem? And I said, no, because I was not as well-educated as Louise. And he said, well, read it, he said. You know? <laughs> so I don't know if you know the poem, but I, I'm going to read you a clip from it, Mark, here. And it says, keep Ithaca always in your mind. Arriving there is what you're destined for. But don't hurry the journey at all. Better it lasts for years, so that you're old by the time you reach the island wealthy with all you've gained on the way and so it's all about the journey and to me it's always been about the journey and there is no end game in sight and one this is the problem i think if you focus on well in 2035 we'll do this so i think it's about the journey i think it's about looking back and being proud and in the real sense proud of what one's built over the long term and importantly your colleagues who have come on that journey with you, joined you along the way, there's now 8,000 of them, you know, are equally proud to look back, yeah, and think, I'm proud of what I achieved. Because that way, they'll actually turn to their friends and their families and others and be the best advocates for bringing others into the business. If we can prove that you can build a model that really is forever, whatever a lawyer is, that's built around some of those fundamentals, then that is my end game. But it's not an end game. It's just a part of the journey, Mark. David, I've taken up a huge amount of your time. Just wanted to thank you for 
giving us your time today. Everything seems to be moving lightning fast. Hopefully you'll check in and give us an update sometime in 2021 when perhaps you've spent some of your war chest and it's not as big as it was. But thank you so much for giving us your time. No, it's been a pleasure. And uh, as I said earlier on, you know, I think that when we look forward at the moment in this market, we are very excited about the insurance market in general. I think it's a great business, a great market, and it's got a great chance to really shine in difficult times. And then when I take that down to our own level, I have never been so excited about the future. I think it's going to be a, a wonderful next decade. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>